From the Faculty of Graduate Studies at York University, this is Grad Life. I'm Will Sloan. When I was growing up, we were taught in school that Canada's refugee system was a progressive beacon for the world to aspire to, and that everyone had the God-given right to at least declare refugee status. As it turns out, not all refugees are perceived as equal, even in Canada. Harini Sivalingam is a PhD candidate in social legal studies. She is currently working on a dissertation about the public, legal, and political discourses surrounding the arrival of asylum seekers in Canada. In a recent op-ed for the Toronto Star, she used the case of a boat called the MV Ocean Lady to explain some of her ideas. In your recent article for the Toronto Star, you begin by describing the MV Ocean Lady, which was a ship that appeared off the coast of Vancouver in October 2009. Can we start by describing who was on that ship and what makes that particular ship of interest to you in your research? Yeah, so um, so the, the folks that came on that ship were 76 Tamil men who came from Sri Lanka. So they were escaping the civil war that had just ended maybe a few months towards like May 2009. So just like within five months, the war had just ended and it was a three decade long war that took place. And these refugees had just left the brunt of that conflict and had arrived to Canada on this ship. Hoping uh, for a better life. Exactly. Um, hoping to, well, escape, like, you know, the civil war and the, and the um, insecurity that they faced in their homeland, but also hoping to start a fresh life um, where they were safe and secure. And they were intercepted off the coast. So what happened to them in the months and years that followed? So the interesting thing is um, nobody really knew that this boat was going to come. Nobody expected it. So it was a surprise arrival. Um, I think the authorities, the, um, the Canadian authorities, were tipped off like closer to their arrival. So when they actually started approaching Canadian waters, uh, they were monitoring the ship. But just nobody had any prior warning that the ship was going to be there. So it did take a lot of people by surprise, including the Tamil community. Uh, Most people just heard about it when it hit the news. So they were intercepted by the Canadian Navy and escorted into the harbour. And they were immediately detained upon arrival. And they were processed as refugees, but they were detained, um, like, you know, all of them were detained. With the MV Ocean Lady, the detention was a little bit shorter than the second boat. Maybe we'll come to that later, but... um, so they were relatively quicker to be processed. Um, it was 76 compared to the larger um, amount on the second boat. But they did get stuck in terms of getting their cases heard because it was a mass arrival and the refugee determination system just wasn't prepared to take on like you know, a number of claimants all at the same time. So they did um, have to like you know struggle with that. They also were not very welcomed. The government at the time was not very proactive in terms of welcoming these particular refugees to Mm. to the country. What was the second boat and how soon did it take for it to arrive after? The second ship was the MV Sunsea and that had 492 men, women and children on board and that arrived in August of 2010. So about less than 12 months later, right? So around, like, you know, eight to nine months later. And a lot of these refugees, it took years for them to make it through the system. I think there were family separations you mentioned. Yeah, so more particularly with the MV Sunsea, they took a lot longer to process. So some, there's still some cases that have not been finalized. So almost 10 years later, maybe their initial hearings were heard, but then they appealed them to federal court. 
and then the federal court sent them back to a redetermination. So there's still people that don't have their status confirmed yet. So it has been a very lengthy process. It is a large number, like it was a mass survival, so there was a large number of people to process. But if you compare it to the larger statistics on refugees, it's a drop in the bucket, right? I know they did arrive all at once, so that was a unique rupture in refugee processing system. But if you look at the numbers of um, asylum claimants, it like you know who arrive um, during land borders or in the airports, it's kind of a drop in the bucket. So. This particular arrival was scrutinized a little bit more intensely because it was such a public visible arrival. And that's basically, to answer your first question, that's really what got me interested in these boat arrivals is to look at, well, what was so unique about the arrivals that made this such a a rupture in how we process refugee claimants. Your dissertation that you're working on now is focused on these big boat arrivals. I get the sense that perhaps there's more of a stigma or there's something about these big mass boat arrivals from other countries that gives people the heebie-jeebies. And why do you think that is? And what effect does that stigma have on refugee communities? That's exactly what I was interested in. Like that's, what, that's kind of the questions I was trying to probe while I was doing my research, because if you look at it, we don't have that many boat arrivals. It's not, you know, in the Mediterranean Sea, like in Europe, the European contact, Australia, right, where they have a lot more boats of refugees that are coming. For Canada, if you look at the last hundred years, we've maybe had less than a dozen boats that have, like, you know, tried to arrive. Very um, small number. Yeah, so very small number. And if you look at the numbers, it's even, like, of actual people on board those boats. Very, very small. So when these do happen, um, I guess maybe because it's not as frequent, it just becomes this public visible, I call it hyper-visibilized event that renders a lot of, um, I guess, panic around the government, public, you know, the legal system, like how do we handle this, right? Because it's such a unique thing in the Canadian context, right? The stigma actually also goes both ways, right? Because I found that these aren't the first um, Tamil boats to arrive to Canada. In 1986, we had a boat of, um, I think, I can't remember if it was like 125, but about like, you know, um, a fair number of Tamils that arrived on the East Coast, just off of Newfoundland. And that boat arrival, they just, it was 1986, so I was involved with some of the advocacy around the 25th anniversary of it and the 35th anniversary of it. And we had a really hard time within the community trying to identify people who came on those boats because there was the stigma around having been a quote-unquote boat people, right, and having arrived on there. So um, people who, were, who came on that boat had this sense of stigma associated with having come to this country on a boat. So there's that, like, that stigma kind of goes both ways, right? Like to, and it also is a stigma that sticks onto the bodies of the refugees themselves. But what's interesting with the two recent boat arrivals is when I've interviewed them, they actually embrace their identity of having come to Canada on the boat. Um, there's a strong community that has developed among those that have arrived. Um, they've, they have felt a little bit, I don't want to say let down, but they did feel isolated um, when they came here. So they really bonded together and formed a sense of community. And so that I think was very interesting that they actually um, identified more readily as having come on the MV Sunsea and Ocean Lady than the 1986 Newfoundland boat arrivals. Now, I'm sure the sort of panic that comes after a boat arrival, there's got to be a huge element of both racism and classism in that. I don't know how on the surface that is, but how, how does that manifest itself? 
several ways, so like systemically, but also directly. Um, so when I interviewed people who actually came on the boat, I also interviewed people that were advocating for them, that were refugee rights activists or lawyers that represented them. And quite a number of people uh, mentioned that So as I mentioned, the boat arrivals, when they came, they were all detained. So the men were detained in a maximum security jail. And when they were, I guess, like, you know, um, had their recreation time or being like, you know, um, out in the yard, they heard people, um, the general prison population, calling them uh, Pakis, go home, you're terrorists, you're not welcome here. So those kind of like directly racist remarks. But then there was also like, you know, systemic things like language barriers, like there wasn't enough translators when they were being interviewed by CBSA and trying to get their refugee claims heard. So there wasn't enough Tamil speaking translators. So that also was an evidence of like, you know, a, a little bit of systemic issues in terms of how they were perceived, right? So they were also perceived as being terrorists. They were criminalized as, you know, having come here illegally, even though claiming refugee status is not an illegal act. It doesn't matter how you came to the country. You have the right to claim refugee status under international humanitarian law and international refugee law. So um, they were labeled as terrorists. They were labeled as, like, you know, criminalized, right, by the mode of their arrival. So those are all, like, different factors that I think shape how they were perceived. And so often, even you hear liberal people or ostensibly liberal people saying things like, oh, well, you know, we want immigrants who can come here who can get a job and can contribute to our economy. They talk about humans in these very kind of crudely materialist terms, right? I would imagine that, say, if a refugee comes after buying a plane ticket, that sends off an affect that's different than a boat full of 70 people, right? Right, definitely. So, I mean, I guess, like, definitely the class dynamics there of having the resources to actually leave the country and how, right, Um, how you're able to leave and what modes of transportation are available to you. What I found interesting about refugees and how they're perceived is that I mean, I guess Western countries in general, they like to go into refugee camps and kind of handpick the refugees that they want to resettle. So when people just come and show up at the shorelines or the gates or the borders, I think that's when people get become apprehensive because they've kind of self-selected versus the country that's receiving them going and selecting which refugees we want to attract or which ones we want to resettle ourselves, right? So there's also that dynamic involved as well. Before your dissertation, you did a master's thesis uh, about discourses of fear and victimization in national security contexts. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? What were your conclusions from that? Sure. So um, so I my master's thesis looked at how communities were stigmatized by or through national security laws. And I used the Tamil community because that's the community that I'm from and that's the one that I had access to and knowledge of. So I used them as an example because they had recently with the anti-terrorism laws, they listed the um, a Tamil organization as a terrorist entity and they listed the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Ilam as a terrorist group. So I wanted to see what impact that labeling of this group that's identified as being like, you know, Tamil Tigers or identified with the Tamil community, what listing that group as terrorist, what impact that has on the general popula- uh, Tamil community and general population in Canada. 
And what I found was that there was a lot of systemic discrimination that resulted from that labeling or that listing. And um, that filtered down to people in school, people in work, just everyday interactions or social interactions. And that the community, at least they felt very stigmatized or I guess um, criminalized by that listing. And I can give you a couple of examples. So just like in everyday interactions, people will be like, ah, oh, you're Tamil, oh, you're a Tamil tiger? Um, so they just like, you know, associate Tamil with tiger with terrorism, right? Mm-hmm. So just that, like, you know, kind of that broad joke of a brush. And then, like, there's also more serious impacts where, like, student groups were not able to access the same resources on campus, for example, because they were seen as being supportive of a terrorist group. And just like, you know, there was this one student group in a a high school that were told that they can't speak Tamil in their meetings because the administration didn't know what they were saying. Mm. So they didn't know what they were talking about. So they were afraid that they were plotting something, or I don't know what it was, right? But they were apparently afraid that, um, of these high school students speaking in Tamil because they didn't understand the language. So it was just like little things like that that really had an impact on, on the community. How does being Tamil and having been part of Tamil diaspora, how does that inform your work? I get embedded into my work, right? Because that's part of my identity. Um, it's, um, I actually don't speak Tamil, so it's a little bit of a nuance there because even with my interviews, I actually had to have an inter- a Tamil interpreter because my Tamil isn't good enough or isn't strong enough to um, have engaged into in-depth conversations with the people that I wanted to interview. So even though I don't have the language skills, I have, I guess, the cultural awareness, the, the network, um, the connections and the identity, right, that had kind of fueled my research, my interests, my passions in working in the community and really uncovering some of the issues that others haven't really looked into or haven't looked into in-depthly. For more information on the Faculty of Graduate Studies, go to gradstudies.yorku.ca. Thanks for listening.